Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to um, uh, Acts chapter 6. Thanks for coming this morning. You know, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, as most of you know, and uh, uh, before we do anything else, I just want to acknowledge the fact that we have the freedom to be here and the freedom to worship God as we see um, fit, uh, to acknowledge uh, the truth of God freely, and it's, it is because of uh, men and women who have given their lives for that freedom. Many of you, you can give them applause, yes. I, uh, I, was named, uh, I was named after a great uncle who was killed in the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, so like many of you, uh, I have family or are no friends who have given uh, and made the ultimate sacrifice uh, for our freedom. And it's just, it just seems appropriate for us to acknowledge that uh, and just to, just to pray about that. Okay, so why don't you join me in prayer. Our Father, as we sit here together, as we sing these songs to you, as we invite you to be with us in a special way, as we open your word and study, um, we recognize that we have the freedom to do this because of, because of men and women, friends and family, uh, who uh, have made the ultimate sacrifice for that freedom. And today, this weekend, I pray that it wouldn't just be about getting some time off, having picnics, going to parades without us truly recognizing uh, the cost of freedom. And uh, I am grateful, God, for those men and women who have gone before me, before all of us, and even to this day, uh, uh, put their lives at risk uh, for the freedom we enjoy. And we're grateful for it. May we always be grateful for it and for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 6. Uh, In case you're a guest with us this morning, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, and it's a study of this first century document that records how the early church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And uh, up until this point in the study, uh, we've seen the church grow from just a handful of Jesus followers in chapter 1 to well over 8,000 believers who... Uh, who faced very little resistance, you know, from those in authority until chapter 4, when suddenly uh, the church and its message of Jesus began to meet opposition. In fact, last week in chapter 5, we saw the religious elite in Jerusalem, sort of the head guys at the temple, out of anger and jealousy, arrest the apostles, all 12 of them, um, interrogate them, torture them, and then ordered them to not speak in the name of Jesus anymore else. And then they released them. And uh, what did Peter, John, and Andrew and all the rest of them do? They said, we must obey God rather than human beings. And with, with amazing courage, they went out and were told that day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we talked about you know, that kind of courage and how it's really not about the absence of fear. It's about the belief that something or someone else is more important than our fear. And certainly that was the case with the apostles and the earliest Christians who took a heroically courageous stand for Jesus in the good news uh, of grace, even in the face of growing persecution. And uh, if you missed that message last week, I encourage you to go online and listen. I think you'll find it really quite helpful. So that brings us up to chapter 6, verse 1, where... the, the saga continues, and we're told that in those days when the number of disciples uh, was increasing, 
The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and they said, it, w- it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, one of the things that I find just fascinating about this early record of the church is Luke's, you know, the author's attention to detail, especially uh, in regard to church growth, because he even gives statistics, right? We're told that on one day alone, uh, 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. On another day, uh, the number was 5,000 people. How did they know the number? How did they keep track of who these Christians were? Because every person who chose to believe in Jesus was baptized, ceremonially washed, is what the word means, uh, publicly, uh, just as the symbol and expression of personal faith. Along with that, uh, the Christians were meeting together in the temple courts and other places uh, for public worship, prayer, teaching. Believers met in each other's homes throughout the week. And so the church was able to keep track of its growth, uh, if not for anything else, for pragmatic reasons. Years ago, when I first came here to Glen Ellen, I asked someone in the church about attendance numbers, and they said, well, we don't, we don't really count uh, how many people come or anything like that. And I said, well, why not? They said, well, we don't, we don't think it's necessary. And I said, well, here's the deal. If it was good enough for the apostles, I think it's good enough for us. So let's start counting. If, if for anything, for the sake of those we want to care for and, and, and those who we're planning for. And uh, that's the way it's been for the church since the first century. And so Luke reports statistics on her growth and says things like more and more people believed or the Lord kept adding to their number daily, those who are coming to faith. And here in this particular section of chapter 6, he begins in verse 1 saying that the number of disciples was increasing. And then in verse 7, he ends with the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. So once again, Luke affirms the rapid expansion of the Christian church. But in between those statements, he also acknowledges the challenges faced by the apostles because of that growth, which, you know, um, isn't all that surprising because as with any, you know, as with any growing family or growing organization, there are always going to be challenges. We, We should expect it. Growth brings about change. Change brings on challenges. And the early church was no exception. And so we're given some insight here to a conflict that arose in the midst of of, of this growth. And side note on this, by the way, conflict in the church, conflict in the body of Christ is nothing new. I mean, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've seen it, maybe been in the thick of it, look, it's not easy. It is not easy for, for sinful, broken people to get along in community. It's just not. We all have this we all have this incredibly selfish side to our humanity that wants what we want and the way that we want it, um, when we want it, and, and, the, and, and if we don't get it, then, then we're angry and we criticize and we complain. 
And unfortunately, we also fail to recognize the insidious and destructive nature of that. Now, one thing the experience of early Christians teaches us, at least it should teach us, is that external persecution tends to purify and strengthen the church, whereas internal dissension poisons and weakens her. It turns our focus uh, inward, drawing our vision and energy away from our mission, away from being who God has called us to be, away from um, doing what God has called us to do in our world. Petty pride, insignificant issues, bickering, discontent, jealousy, disagreement, personal preference, power struggles, all that kind of stuff makes up so much of church life. And it just, it just poisons community and it saps the strength out of the body of Christ, not to mention undercuts the message of God's love uh, and grace in Jesus. All that to say is that in Acts chapter 6 here, the rapid growth of the church in Jerusalem was challenging and it was producing some conflict. And what was, what was the conflict? Well, apparently, the Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because they felt that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution, literally the serving of food. Now, keep in mind, unlike today, unlike in our culture where we have churches all over the place, there was only one church in Jerusalem. And at this point, it consisted mostly of men and women from Jewish backgrounds. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews were those uh, people born outside of Palestine, outside of Israel. They came from other regions of the Roman Empire. They spoke Greek as a first language. They went to Greek-speaking synagogue. Uh, they read the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Hebraic Jews were born in Palestine. They were native to Israel. They spoke Hebrew. They worshipped in Hebrew. They read the Hebrew Scriptures. And although all of these people were technically Jewish, there were some cultural differences between the two groups. And now suddenly, many of these people become, are becoming followers of the Messiah Jesus They're worship, and worshiping together uh, in, the, in this very diverse community called the church. And by and large, it was all pretty good. I mean, for the most part, everyone got along, caring and sharing and generously sacrificing for one another. But let's be realistic. I mean, there, there were probably some misunderstandings now and then, maybe maybe a little tension, perhaps a feeling of insecurity among the Hellenists, fueled by an attitude of superiority by some of the Hebraic believers. I mean, we don't really know what all the underlying dynamics were of the community. All we're told is that at somewhere, some point along the line here, the Hellenistic believers felt that their widows were being overlooked and not as well served as they should be, and they seemed to blame the Hebraic believers. Again, wasn't like today where when Christians don't like something in the church, they leave and go to another one down the street. There was only one church in Jerusalem. And these believers had nowhere else to go, so they had to figure this out together. Now, the apostles, Andrew, John, Peter, James, all of them, they hear about this. And we don't know how they hear about it. Um, the Greek term that's used here, complain, is an interesting term. It's gongudzo. Uh, it is not in the Greek. It's not a positive term. It doesn't even sound positive. It sounds like you're choking, right? Gungudzo. Uh, it's, an, it's what's called an onomatopoeia. You guys know what that is? It's a word that sounds like it's meaning. It's like our English word buzz or sizzle. Gungudzo. It meant to secretly grumble with discontent. And it carries a very negative connotation, sort of this negative underground, behind the scenes nuance to it is not helpful. 
In his commentary on the book of Acts, entitled The Jesus Revolution, author and pastor for more than 40 years, a very large church up in Minnesota, Dr. Leith Anderson writes about this particular section of the text. He says that in terms of the church, grumblers are still in our midst. They don't think they're complainers. They believe they're wiser, more godly, and helpful. But they can contaminate others with their attitude. When an approach is self-righteous, know-it-all, and accusatory, it can draw in others and take the focus off Jesus. It can hinder the work of God. That's the danger of Gungudzo, of grumbling. And uh, Anderson points out, it's the reason the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in the early church, and he says, do everything without grumbling, without arguing. But as I mentioned earlier, that's really hard because there's a sinful side to all of us that lends itself to gungudzo, to grumbling. And that was, you know, look, that was true of the early church. They, was a, they were as, as human as, as the rest of us. And so somehow, we don't know how, somehow the apostles become aware of this gungudzo, this, this grumbling, and the alleged problem uh, behind it. And I, and I say alleged because, um, well, because Peter and John and all the rest, they never say for sure inequity was indeed occurring, let alone intentionally occurring, Right? I mean, look at their response. We're told that the 12 gathered everybody together and they said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Which is a really interesting response to me because, because for first century Jewish people, whether they were Hellenistic or Hebraic, caring for the poor, uh, caring for the marginalized and the forgotten was a, was a really big deal. It was a serious thing because... They all knew that throughout the Old Testament, God calls his people to justice and to generosity on behalf of the poor. God instructed his people to administer true justice, he said. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. The psalmist in the Old Testament writes, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the powerless. And so for any you know, any Jewish background person to intentionally neglect or mistreat uh, widows, especially those from outside Palestine who spoke a different language and didn't have an extended family network in Jerusalem, would have been a serious thing, a serious thing. And it just seems to me that if the apostles knew for certain there was intentional preference being given to one group over another, they would have publicly condemned such prejudice. But they don't. You see, just because someone grumbles about something doesn't prove their reason for doing so is warranted or right or accurate. I mean, there very well may have been a deliberate neglect of Hellenistic widows or maybe an accidental one or maybe none at all. It was just a a misperception. The apostles don't say one way, or they, one way or another. However, they leave room for the possibility that something, something wasn't working well. But instead of taking sides and creating greater division, they, they apply wisdom and, and, and really good leadership. And it's like they say, look, if some of our widows aren't being served the food they need, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And the Greek term that's used here for wait on tables is used three times in this text. It's the Greek term diakoneo. It's where we get our word deacon. In 
It means literally to wait on tables, to serve like a busboy, like a waiter, like a waitress. It's the same term that's used in verse 1. We, we translate distribution, but really it's the word, the service of food, literally, is what it says. So here's my Reiki summary. The apostles, the apostles basically say, look, if some of our widows aren't being served the food they need, it would be a mistake for us to neglect our teaching in order to serve them. Now, in some respects, that sounds a little weird. It may sound even somewhat defensive, as if somebody in the crowd raised their hand and suggested, suggested Peter and the guys take a hands-on approach to the problem, which wouldn't, wouldn't have been a bad idea necessarily. But whether someone said that or not, it's really not a defensive reaction. It's quite a wise one. Because the apostles recognize here that another significant challenge for a growing church is to not neglect the teaching of God's word. I mean, in and of itself, it would have been a good thing for the apostles to demonstrate humility by serving tables and personally caring for widows. It would have been a good thing. But would it have been the best thing for the church? No. Ironically, ironically, if they did that, then something good would have become a threat to the church. Here's the point. The growth and health of the early church required someone to focus on teaching about Jesus and teaching the scriptures. The same is, the same is true today. To neglect that, to neglect such teaching is a serious error and puts the church at risk. So understand, growth is always going to present change and practical challenges. And for the church in Jerusalem, this was a practical issue. It was not a theological one. So, so what's the solution? Well, the apostles, they take the lead on this, and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to delegate. Let's choose seven wise, godly men from within the church, and let's turn the responsibility of ensuring the care of all of our widows to them, and then we'll continue to give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the Greek term for ministry here is the same term, diakoneo, to deacon, to serve. So literally, the apostles say, let's find some guys to ensure the serving of widows and we'll ensure the serving of God's word. And everybody seemed to think that that was a good plan. Uh, in fact, they, the church does something very kind here, very compassionate and very wise. All seven of the men who were chosen came from among the Hellenistic group, those who were feeling most neglected. We know that because they all have Greek names. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and then Nicholas from Antioch, who, was a, who converted as a, as a Gentile, converted to Judaism. Now he's a Christian. And, and, and so they choose all these, these, these guys from, from the Hellenistic group, which was such a great way to affirm, to affirm unity and, and, and oneness in the church and to press this idea that no one was to be neglected and no one group was more important and, or deserving than another. We're all in this together. It was a brilliant move. And so the apostles approved the, these Hellenistic believers, and they pray for them in this newly created serving ministry. But here is my question. Because I'm thinking through this. I'm thinking, okay, but were these guys going to be able to do the job? I mean, we know the church at this point was well over 8,000 people. Some scholars suggesting the number was pushing 15,000. Seven men? Was that going to be enough? I don't think so. 
But I also don't think that that was the intention, you know, namely that these guys were going to do all the actual serving. Instead, they were given the responsibility to make sure the job got done. And how was that going to happen in such a large, rapidly growing uh, church? By them inviting and engaging others to serve as well. That's how. See, it's a mistake to read this text and come away with the notion that only certain people in the church serve. I mean, that's not the point of what happens here. If anything, the point is that some people serve one way while others serve another. But everybody serves. And why do I say that? I say it because of the word diakoneo, to deacon or to serve tables, which uh, is used three times here. And, and just so you know, this was the... This was the exact same term that Jesus used on the night before his crucifixion when he was with the apostles sitting around a table uh, sharing a meal and the, the disciples, they started arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You remember that? Like, who's going to be great? I'm going to be greater than you. You're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you remember what Jesus said to them? He interrupts the conversation. He says, who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves the table? There's our word. He says, I am, I am among you as one who, diakoneo, serves the table. And what did Jesus do that night to demonstrate the nature of such a servant? He got down on his hands and knees and he washed the filthy feet of his followers. He willingly did the menial work that at the time only slaves were expected to do. In other words, for Jesus, a servant is one who humbly meets the most basic needs of other people. And what he said and did that night with the disciples set an example for the ministry of service all Christians should have, all of us. I mean, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, consider, consider what that meant. It meant that he served despite his impending death. Just hours away, Jesus would be arrested and crucified. He knew what was coming. He felt the tremendous weight of that, but it didn't keep him from serving. You know, for so many of us today, when we're in life, when we're burdened or we're hurting, do we look around and notice people's feet need to be washed? In other words, do, do we look for ways to serve? Not usually. Usually we're, we're absorbed in our own troubles, our own fears, our own anxiety, and we just want others to take care of us. Not Jesus. He serves without self-pity, without self-absorption. See, true servanthood doesn't say, you know, well, when I get my life together, when I get over my melancholy, when I, when I get my schedule in order, when I find some time, then I'll serve. No. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling, you know, you're struggling, you're hurting, and maybe a little angry because no one seems to be noticing. And so you have no interest in serving anybody else. Well, where would you be, where would I be if that was Jesus' attitude? He served us despite his own burdens. Side note here. You realize that serving others uh, is one of the ways to overcome self-absorption? And despondency? It is. In the Old Testament, God said, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and serve the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your, light, or your night will become like the noonday. Translation, you'll find joy and fulfillment and purpose in serving even when you're struggling. 
Here's another thing about Jesus' serving. He did it despite the unworthiness of the recipients. I mean, he knew, look, he knew the, the disciples. He spent three, three years with them. He knew they were messed up guys, imperfect people. You know, think of the group around the table. One was a betrayer, one a denier. All of them would abandon Jesus when he needed them most. I mean, seriously, two of the feet Jesus washed were dirty because he, they'd have been out arranging his arrest and collecting blood money. And yet, what did Jesus do? He graciously loved and served every single one of those guys without discrimination, without looking at their unworthiness or how they were going to treat him later on. You know, as as hard as it is for us to accept, the, the, the reality is that true servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. I mean, do you serve? And if so, do you serve only people like you or those you find attractive or those who are like you or those who you know will be grateful for what you do and who will reward that? Jesus said, that's easy. Anybody can do that. He said, I want my followers to graciously serve all comers, everyone, even their enemy, because they themselves have been graciously served. And then one more thing, Jesus served despite his prominence. I mean, here's deity in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior, about to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, and where is he? He's on the floor washing feet. He served despite his position, despite his authority. He served without an ounce of pride. Too often we in the church who are committed to serving drift into a self-righteous an arrogant attitude toward those who seem to us less committed, yeah? You know, we're tempted to look down our noses at those who look down theirs at the poor, or we snub our noses at those who snub theirs at serving. But here's the deal. If we who serve cop that kind of an attitude toward those who to us seem complacent, we will soon discover no one is following us for good reason. Because arrogance doesn't invite or inspire others to join in serving. It just doesn't. The spirit of a servant and a servant leader is one of humility. Okay, back to the text. So everybody, look, everybody was expected to serve in some way. Everyone was. In chapter 4, in fact, we're told that's what was happening. That was what was so amazing. All the believers, men and women, they're all together, one in heart, one in spirit, one in mind, and they were, they, were, they were giving, they were sharing, they were sacrificing for one another. But here in chapter 6, the apostles, they identify the serving of widows, care for the poor, as a strategic priority. And, and they make an organizational move to ensure it was a sustainable practice. How? By putting key people in place to manage it. And what was the result? We're told the result was that the word of God spread. You know, the teaching about Jesus, God's love, God's grace, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. I mean, more and more people in Jerusalem were hearing this good news. Not only were they hearing it, they were believing it. They were embracing it. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And then get this, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Which is amazing to me. That's an amazing statement because last week we saw the high priest, right, and his associates, the leaders in the temple, 
Man, they were cracking down on the church. They were telling the apostles to stop teaching about this Jesus. Yet many of the working priests were becoming followers of him. Why? My guess is that for them, it wasn't, it wasn't just because of what the church was saying about Jesus, but what the church was doing because of Jesus. See, one of the roles of, of the priests at the time was to care for the poor. But suddenly, here were all these Christians doing it, and they were doing it together, and they were doing it with joy and great generosity as if they were all priests, all serving, all giving, all sacrificing. And in the process of doing it, breaking down socioeconomic, racial, and cultural religious barriers. I mean, it was a, it was a new, beautiful, extraordinary, and compelling thing. And the church was growing in numbers because of it, and priests were coming to Jesus because of it. Henry Chadwick was a professor of history at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, considered one of the world's foremost authorities on historic Christianity. And in his book titled The Early Church, he writes this, the expansion of the early church seemed an extraordinary chain of improbabilities. Nothing could have been less likely to succeed by any ordinary standard of expectation. The practical application of generosity was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. The pagan comment, see how these Christians love one another, was not irony. Christian charity expressed itself in the care for the poor, for widows, for orphans. Here's my Reiki summary. The early church's radical generosity expressed practically by way of caring for the poor and the powerless was a was a compelling apologetic to the truth of Jesus and his gospel of grace. Together, both the words and work of Christians were impacting first century Jewish culture. Together they were doing that. And the church was growing rapidly, even in the context of an increasingly hostile environment. Amazing. See, here's the deal. You know, they didn't have books or seminars to go to. But as the apostles learned about church growth, what they learned about church growth, while it was exciting, they learned that it brings change and therefore it brings challenges. But those challenges are not insurmountable as long as as we all agree to maintain our focus on what is absolutely most important, teaching people about Jesus and humbly serving one another humbly serving one another and those outside of our walls with special attention given to the poor and powerless of our world. We do that, and the word will spread, and the church will grow. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for uh, this record uh, this record of the church and uh, Luke's attention to detail and how we see uh, men and women from all, you know, from different experiences and cultural backgrounds, how they heard the news of Jesus, um, understood the offer of your grace and love and embraced it and experienced the forgiveness of sin and... And uh, their lives were changed, 
transformed. And as a result, Jerusalem was being changed. But it wasn't just what these early believers were saying about Jesus. It also involved what they were doing because of him. And I am so grateful, Lord, that for Peter, John, for the rest, for all the church, it just wasn't, it wasn't empty words, but their, their, their actions on behalf of the poor and the powerless, for widows and orphans, for those who are marginalized and forgotten, their willingness to embrace and love those people as well as everyone else was a new and beautiful, extraordinary, compelling thing that people have never seen before. It even impressed the priests who were touched and changed for Jesus' sake. And so I, I ask today, Lord, that we would, we would think about our own lives, about where we are in, in, in relationship to each other as a church, and, um, and, and recognize that we're all gifted, we're all called to serve as Jesus served, like waiters and waitresses, willing to humble ourselves to meet the needs of those around us. And when we do that, it, it, it kind of takes away the grumbling. It just, it just fades into to obscurity because we, we are experiencing love and, and grace and goodness and, and, and we're seeing you work in people's lives and you're transforming us in, in the process. And so I, I just pray, Lord, that we would have the courage to acknowledge or uh, acknowledge and, 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 and reflect on our own experiences. And, and if we're not serving, I pray that we would. And if we're, if we're serving, that we wouldn't cop attitudes. And if we're just serving those who are like us, that we'd, we'd be challenged in that as well. Um, I just ask, Lord God, that you would, you would change us, that we would become more and more like the early church and that um, we would serve even the least of our brothers and sisters. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, hope, I hope we all understand that the apostles, the, the early Christians, the church in Jerusalem, you know, they weren't doing these things for people. They weren't serving the widows and, and, and the poor and, and sharing their, their, their goods and, and, and sacrificing one another and serving one another. They weren't doing that to earn God's favor, right? They already had God's favor. That was their response to what Jesus had done for them. You know, the Apostle John says, we love God not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. It's our response. When you experience the love and grace of God in Jesus through faith in Christ, it changes us from the inside out and it transforms our lives. It transforms the way we interact together and uh, it will transform our culture. You look at the early church, um, things were changing quickly in Jerusalem and, um, and it was because the Christians weren't just talking about Jesus, which was important, but they were actually serving because of Jesus. It was their words and their works. It was their claims and, and, their, and their love for people. That, that's working together. That's what made the difference. And I look at that culture, that Greco-Roman culture, that world, and I realize we live in the same kind of world today. 
It's all about ourselves. It's about selfishness, about getting our own way, getting through things, getting what we want, blah, blah, blah. And, it, it, you know, when the church really stands up and says, here's what we believe, and then our actions support those words, that's when, that's when the culture pays attention. And we're going to see that more and more as we work through the book of Acts, especially when the, when the apostles go out into the Gentile world. So um, thanks for being here this morning. If you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, uh, I get that. You know, sometimes we're confused on it. We'll have some of our prayer team folks who are down here in the front. You can come and talk to them. Um, but um, I invite you to, to join with me and others in serving one another and serving our world in a way that makes a difference. So, uh, and come back next week. We're going to take a look at, uh, at a guy named Stephen who is put to death because of what he believes. And it sounds like a morbid story, uh, and it's a, kind of a violent one, but um, the end result is quite amazing what happens. And we are still recipients of the impact of Stephen's life. So come back next week. We'll talk about that, all right? In the meantime, have a great weekend. Don't forget to give thanks for those who have given their lives for us and given us the freedom to be here this morning. Let me pray for you, and then we're dismissed. And now, Lord, I pray that as your people leave this building, that we would go not just in, with our words, but with our lives. And we would, we, would, we would mesh those things together in such a way that we become ourselves, we become a compelling apologetic for the truth of the gospel of grace. And that we will point people to you, the God who loves them and who has given them Jesus, the Savior of our souls. And may uh, he be honored today as we go our own way. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next Sunday.